0: Well, welcome, everybody. It's been a couple weeks since we were together on a Wednesday night, so um, we'll spend a, a few minutes on review, uh, just kind of refreshing everybody's memory before we uh, dive into our patch, passage in uh, Chapter 11. So um, let's, let's take a moment of silent prayer before we study the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather to worship you corporately we ask that you are pleased with our worship of you this evening we ask that you we pray that uh, that you are pleased with the presentation and the reception of your word that we may bring honor to your name we pray these things in jesus name amen Today we begin chapter 11 of the book of 1st Samuel and the context for chapter 11 really takes us as far back as chapter 8 when Israel asked God for a king. Really they asked Samuel for a king. They said appoint for us, give us a king. Samuel's response was, it was displeasing. The, the text in chapter 8 says it was displeasing in, in Samuel's eyes. It's the It's the Hebrew word ra'ah, which sounds the way it means and means the way it sounds. It's not a good-sounding or good-meaning word. It was displeasing evil in Samuel's eyes back in chapter 8. It's not that there was anything wrong with Israel having a king. God had always designed Israel to have a king. That was back in the law, back in Deuteronomy 17. But the king that Israel was to have under God's plan was a king who would rely on God and would rely on his word. A king that would be required to write the entire law before the priests and to live by it. It was a real task to write the law. You don't just type it out on a word processor back then. You painstakingly write each of those Hebrew letters for the entire law. And so that was to be done by the king, he was to live by the law, he was to rely on the Lord so that the king's heart would not be elevated above his people, because the king was not to be like all the other kings, like the kings of the other nations who lorded their authority over the people. But sadly, Israel asked for a king, and they used the phrase in chapter 8, a king who would be like the other nations. They didn't want to be the special people of God. They wanted to be like the world, a problem that is for us today as well because often we as Christians kind of get drawn to the world and we forget the special calling that God has on our lives. Of course, we are not Israel, but we too have a special calling. It's different than Israel's calling. But back in chapter 8... The Israelites wanted a king who would not rely on the invisible God. They wanted a king who would be powerful and impressive. So in God's grace, he warned them, a king like this you're not going to like, a king that fits the pattern, that fits the design that you want, you are not going to enjoy that king. He's going to, you see the word repeated over and over in the, in the end of chapter 8, he's going to take and take and take and take and take a king like you want is not a government that you're going to enjoy that government is going to be independent of god and the people in their distrust of god said that's what we want that's the type of king that we want and i know that we are critical of them in this book as we should be but we we should also look at ourselves in the mirror as a nation, because we also collectively as a nation want a government that is independent of God. And so our government takes and takes and takes and takes and takes because our government is independent of God. It's the same warning that God gave the Israelites of a ki- with respect to a king who would be independent of God. It's the same warning from chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. So God gives them a king. He gives them a king that fits their design, their physical design. He is described in chapter 9, verse 2, as the tallest and the most handsome of all of Israel. He fits the physical pattern that they want. They want this impressive king. God gives them a king who fits their physical pattern. God gives them a king who fits their spiritual pattern, because this king, Saul, lives by sight and not by faith, just like the people now, in many ways, Saul starts out as a good king. He starts out with good leadership characteristics like humility and wisdom. And it seems like his reign will be successful. We're going to see a great success for his re- in, in the beginning of his reign today. But in the end, Saul will finish in the opposite direction. He'll finish very poorly. Last time we ended with chapter 10, which was the coronation of King Saul... Despite Samuel having anointed Saul and God having provided miracles, evidencing the validity of the anointing, the, that we've seen the Hebrew word anoint. It's the, the, the word that has the con- concept of, of smearing. Literally, it means s- smearing, mashah. You smear something on, uh, on someone else. In this case, oil Olive oil. They pour it on the one who's being anointed. That's what Samuel did, and it's a symbol. It's a ritual saying that you are chosen of God, the first king of all of Israel. So, despite Samuel anointing Saul, and despite God giving multiple miracles to evidence to Saul that this anointing is legit, what we saw last time is that the king, when the, when when all of the people of Israel were gathered, the king is hiding. When they draw the lots and God moves the lots to identify that it's Saul, that it's a Benjamite, and it's from Saul's clan, and it's Saul himself, they look for Saul, and he's hiding among the luggage. He's hiding among the baggage. A very bad look for the new king. And so they say, where's where's Saul? And God reveals, he discloses where Saul is. They find him, and they chant, long live the king. This is the context for our verse, and for our passage tonight, which begins in chapter 11. And tonight we will see that God will again make clear that Saul is his choice for king. Tonight we're going to see this great military victory. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Now Nahash, the Ammonite, came up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. Nahash in, in, in the Hebrew means serpent. And so here's kind of your, your bearings here with this map on the screen. You kind of get a, a, a sense of what's going on here and the, and the geography. Here's Ammon, so that we're talking about the Ammonites, or Ammonites, who come up to Jabesh-Gilead here. This is kind of a remote town. It's, it's east of of the Jordan. Right here's the Jordan. You've got the Sea of Galilee. Jordan River flows out of that and then into the Dead Sea, which is at a much lower elevation. But Jabesh, uh, uh, Jabesh Gilead is over here on the east of the Jordan. And it's somewhat remote from Gibeah. Gibeah is where the king is from, where King Saul is from. And the men of Jabesh are outnumbered. The the Ammonites come to their town, and they start to th- the, to threaten the the siege of the town. And so the men of Jabesh know that they it's probably better for them to try and negotiate a deal. So they want to negotiate a conditional surrender. Right when you, when you're at war with someone. The one who's winning insists on an unconditional surrender, like we insisted on from the Japanese or from the Germans in World War II. Unconditional. You surrender, period. Not if this, if that, period. You surrender. Well, that's not what the men of Jabesh want. They, they want some terms to the surrender, and that's why they, they have this language. You see this language here at the end of verse 1 that will serve you, basically, will serve you if you, if you don't destroy our city. Keep reading in verse 2, but Nahesh the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you. I'm going to make a deal with you. I'm going to make this covenant with you. Covenant is just a fancy way of saying an agreement or a contract. I will make it with you on the condition that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Thus, I will make it a reproach on all Israel. That sounds like quite a deal, huh? The invader says, I'm going to make a deal with you. I'm not going to destroy your city. And the deal is, I'm going to gouge out every one of your right eyes. Why? Number one, that humiliates this group of the Israelites. But number two, it debilitates the military. Because you can't fight with no right eye. You can't fight hand to hand. We're not talking about about, you know, guys who are sitting behind a computer and and sending smart bombs 5,000 miles away on the other side of the globe. We're talking about hand-to-hand combat. The overwhelming majority of people are right-handed. So if you get rid of their right eye, it's very difficult. You're at a real disadvantage when you're engaged in warfare. And so what this invader, Nahash, wants to do is to cut the military off, at least the military in this town, off at their knees. Keep reading. Verse 3 says, The elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. The implication is there. We'll come out to you, we'll strike this deal, and we'll let you gouge out our right eyes. Now Nahash agrees to the request and it seems kind of odd that he would agree to the request because he's the one with all the leverage, right? When you're negotiating a deal, you can strike the best deal if you have the most leverage. Now, today, we're much more sophisticated and more genteel and we don't negotiate deals at, uh, you know, with, with a gun to someone's head or, in this case, a, a sword at their throat. But that's what's happening. Nahash has the leverage, but he's allowing the men of Jabesh seven days to go find someone else in Israel who will come to their help. Why does he do that? Why didn't he say, say, forget it, I'm going to take the city now. He does it because he has great confidence that Israel is in a state of disarray, that Israel is in a situation where they are weak, and demoralized that's probably because everybody knows about the Philistines, how the Philistines have been hurting Israel for some time. We've seen the Philistines in chapter nine and in chapter 10. And so he believes that no one's going to come. No other Israelites will come to help the men of Jabesh. He assumes they're going to surrender, and it's much easier for the invader to not have to lay siege. It's a costly venture. He's going to spend wealth. Just the the, the effort in having to lay siege. And also, he risks losing troops. So he says, Sure, you do that. And he has total confidence that they're not going to bring, they're not going to be able to get any Israelites to come and save them. Keep reading verse 4. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. The messengers go. To Gibeah. Why? The people from Jabesh Gilead, why don't they go to Jezreel? Why don't they go to Bethel? Why don't they go to any of these other towns? Why Gibeah? Why don't they go to Bethlehem? Why Gibeah? I think what's happening is this is a result of Judges, the events, the evil events. Of Judges chapters 19 through 21, you remember those events where the Levite was in Gibeah with his concubine and the men violated and murdered his concubine and then he takes her corpse and cuts it up and sends it off to all the different tribes in Israel, not the tribe of Benjamin because Gibeah is in the tribe of Benjamin he sends it to all the other tribes, and so the 11 tribes attack the men of Benjamin for the, 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 men, the Benjamites of Gilead, of Gibeah. They attack them because of the evil that they engaged in, and they almost completely exterminate the tribe of Benjamin. They almost bring it to extinction. There's only 600 men of the Benjamites, the, the Benjamites left. And so then the other 11 tribes they're concerned about that. They, they realize they've gone too far, and so they hatch their own evil plan. And what they do is, in this warfare against Gibeah, remember the, the civil war against Gibeah, because of what they did to the concubine, this town, Jabesh Gilead, didn't send any troops to the other 11 tribes to go against the, the 12th tribe of Benjamin. So what the other 11 tribes do after they've really slaughtered almost everybody in the tribe of Benjamin. There's only 600 men left. They go up here to Jabesh Gilead because they're mad at them. They attack them because they didn't send any troops. And they say, we're going to take your virgin daughters and we're going to give them to the 600 men of the Benjamites who are still alive, who we haven't killed. And so what's happened is there's an intermarrying here between the people of Jabesh and the people of Gibeah. In other words, Saul is related to the people of Jabesh. They're third or fourth cousins, distant cousins. There's a familial connection there. Really, what we're seeing is the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, where He takes evil, wicked events that happened in Gibeah and that happened in Jabesh decades before, many decades before, and he uses it for his glory. He uses it without compromising his own holiness. He uses it to create a connection between these two towns because Saul is going to muster an army and go up against Jabesh because that's his family. Those are... The, the ancestors that he's connected to. God used those evil events for his glory, for his plan, without compromising his own holiness. We've seen the verse many times before, Psalm 76.10, that even the wrath of man praises, God uses to praise him. Let's keep reading in verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, What is the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. Saul probably would not have been as fired up if it were some other town, if Nahash the Ammonite was laying siege to some other town, some other remote city, but this is Jabesh, where he has a family connection. The Spirit of God came upon Saul, giving him righteous indignation, and as we will see, giving him power. Power to give one of the greatest military victories that Israel had seen in centuries. This is the second time that the Spirit has come upon Saul. The first time was in chapter 10 when Saul prophesied along with the prophets. But what's interesting here in verse 5 is the location of Saul when he hears the news. You see where he is? He's behind the oxen. The king is plowing the field. I mean, that's what you do when you're behind the ox. The ox is pulling the plow, and the king is working the field. He's not in an elaborate palace. He doesn't have any servants that are doing this hard work. He's working the field himself, as apparently he always did. This is a humble man. Saul is a humble man, at least initially. Keep reading verse 7. He took a yoke of oxen. This is what Saul did. Saul took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of Yahweh fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. This reminds us of the gruesome events at the end of Judges with the Levite who cut up the corpse of his concubine in order to raise an army against the Benjamites but the difference is that this army that Saul is raising is not an army for a civil war this is an army that he's going to amass to fight an enemy of Israel God is raising up his king Saul he's elevating his king notice how Saul aligns himself with Samuel you see this language Saul says whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, he links himself with Samuel. This is wisdom on Saul's part. He hasn't proven himself yet as a king. In fact, his reputation is a little bit of cowardice because when, when it was time to coronate him, they had to find him hiding in the baggage. So what he does is he piggybacks on Samuel's reputation and he ties his call to arms to Samuel's name. Saul is wise here, at least initially. Verse, in, verse 7 ends with the phrase, they came out as one man. This is God at work. This is God uniting the tribes, uniting all these tribes, all 12 tribes behind his king. Notice the phrase, the dread of Yahweh fell upon them. In other words, they feared the Lord more than they feared the army of the Ammonites. This is a very, very, very important Biblical principle that we are to fear God more than we fear people. Isaiah, excuse me, first, uh, or Isaiah, there's an extra site there on the screen that shouldn't be there. Isaiah 51, verses 12 through 13 say this, when Yahweh speaks through Isaiah, he says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man, who dies of the Son of who dies and of the Son of Man who is made like grass that you have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth or Psalm 23 four, the old King James as I memorized it yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death thou art with me thy rod and thy staff they comfort me the principle in the Bible that is repeated over and over is that we are to fear God more than people it's true that there are evil people in this world and we need to respect that reality and take appropriate cautions to deal with that reality. But in the end it is God Almighty who is sovereign and who is eternal and he is the one whom we should fear. Jesus said it so directly in Matthew ten twenty eight: Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell This is reverential awe that God demands of us that we approach him in reverential awe. Not approaching people, but only God. The fear of God produces obedience, and in obedience, the Israelite men respond to Saul's call to arms. Look at verse 8. He numbered them in Bezek, and the sons of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah were 30,000. Bezek is just a little bit west Of Jabesh. It's a little deeper into Israelite territory where Saul could quickly gather this army. 330,000 troops is a huge, huge number of Israelite soldiers. We haven't seen numbers this big in terms of armies, Israelite armies, since the conquest, since Joshua entered the land. So that's at least three centuries. There hasn't been this degree of unity inside Israel in terms of military unity. And notice the distinction between Israel and Judah. In verse 8, you see 300,000 troops from Israel and 30,000 troops from Judah. This probably means that at least this part of the book is written after the divided kingdom, after Israel had been divided into north and south, into after the land of the Jews had been divided into the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. Remember, you've got Saul, united kingdom. You've got David, united kingdom. You've got his son Solomon, united kingdom. And then there's Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And Rehoboam does things that he shouldn't do. And that's when the kingdom divides. What we're seeing here is a clue that at least this part of 1 Samuel is written After the kingdom has been divided, that's why it's being allocated and described in terms of the northern part of the land of the Jews, Israel, and the southern part, Judah. Look at verse 9. They said to the messengers who would come, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad That's an understatement, right? The men of Jabesh are delighted that by noon the next day, they're going to be liberated from this siege that is at the gates. Look at verse 10. Then the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. They're speaking to the leader of the Ammonites, and they're saying to Kim, they're saying to Nahash, we're going to surrender. Tomorrow we're going to surrender and you can do to us whatever you want to do. In other words, you can gouge out our eyes. This is what you would describe as military deception. right? Where one, mili- one, one army uses information, misinformation, to deceive another army in order to gain a, some sort of advantage, like a tactical advantage. What they're gaining here is the advantage of surprise. Look at verse 11. The next morning Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp at the morning, at the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Saul attacks at the morning watch In Old Testament times, it appears that there were three separate watches during the evening when the soldiers would stand guard. The first watch was from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. The second watch was from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. And the third and final watch was from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. So Saul attacks right around daybreak when the Ammonites are kind of strolling out of their tents and they're just waking up. It's very similar to what George Washington did with the with the Hessians at, at Trenton, New Jersey, the day after Christmas, 1776. You know that 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 beautiful portrait where Washington is on the boat and the crossing the Delaware and the chunks of ice are in the Delaware, in the Delaware River, and so he crosses and he attacks the Hessians, the the German mercenaries that King George sent at Trenton, New Jersey. He attacks them early in the morning. It's, it was actually a little later than he had hoped, but he attacks them and it's the element of surprise, and so Washington wins that battle surprisingly. No one thought that, that the American army could win anything at, at, at that time early in the, in the revolution. It's the same sort of idea here with Saul. He attacks early in the morning. It's the element of surprise, and he totally decimates the Ammonites, and that's why we see this phrase, no two of them were left together, meaning Saul's victory was so decisive that the, Am- the Ammonites just scatter in all different directions. Verse 12 says, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. This is revealing how decisive Saul's victory was. It made the people so supportive of their new king that they said, Remember those guys at the end of... Chapter 10, in chapter 10, verse 27, those guys who didn't want Saul to be king and they were kind of grousing, they didn't like God's selection, you go find those guys, Samuel, and we're going to put them to death because they did not support Saul. That sort of attitude is a result from the euphoria of this great victory from the Ammonites. Chapter 10, verse 27 Read like this, but certain worthless men said, how can this one deliver us? You know, the guy who's hiding behind the baggage. And they despised him and did not bring him any present. But he kept silent. Saul kept silent. But now Saul's not going to be silent. Again, look at verse 13. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, Yahweh has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Saul does two great things here. Number one, he does not take revenge. He follows the biblical principle that revenge is up to God. Romans twelve nineteen. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. That's the first great thing that Saul does in verse 13. He does not take revenge. That's the Lord's business, not Saul's. The second great thing that he does is he recognizes that, in fact, it's the Lord who gave the victory. It was God's Spirit, then residing in Saul, that gave Israel the victory. You remember those famous words from Zechariah 4, six: Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of the armies. It's God's Spirit that empowers Saul to have this great victory. Really what's happening is God is using Saul to teach the people that they should rely not on Saul, not on the tall guy, not on the handsome guy, but they should rely on the God who empowered Saul. Because it's Saul who says, no, 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 no. It's the Lord who did this great victory against the Ammonites. Saul understands that this is the Lord's victory, and so he takes no credit for himself. Again, he was humble, at least initially. Saul begins his reign with virtues like humility and wisdom, but a time will come when those virtues will turn to vices. Verse 14 reads like this, Then Samuel said to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal, and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king, before Yahweh in Gilgal. There they offered sacrifices of peace offerings before Yahweh, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. What Samuel does here is he takes this opportunity for the people to reaffirm their commitment to the king, to reaffirm the commitment to Saul, who God had put in place. It's true that Saul does not fit God's design for a king. Saul fits the people's design for a king, but nonetheless God has chosen Saul as the king. Granted, the king who will fit the people's design, but nonetheless, he is God's anointed. And the decisive victory over the Ammonites evidences God's choice for Saul. So it's time to worship, Samuel says. It's time to go and have this great celebration. And so you see this language at the end of verse 15. They rejoiced greatly. Part of worship in involves rejoicing, rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in what the Lord has done. That's what thanksgiving is. It's celebration. Then in chapter 12, we get a pause. Chapter 12 gives us a kind of a stop in the narrative sequence. We've been getting these narrative descriptions of Saul being coronated, and then we, we, we just saw Saul winning this great victory, and the conversations about about. the the men who betrayed Saul, and Saul says, nope, we're not going to execute those men. Now in chapter 12, we get a pause in the narrative sequence, and we get instead a message from Samuel. What's happening in chapter 12 is Samuel is going to give an address to the nation. It's almost like a farewell address, because Samuel is going to take the baton and pass it to Saul, at least in the capacity of judge. Remember, Samuel is judge, prophet, and priest, and Samuel is the last of the judges. With chapter 12, the era of the judges is over. It ends. The 300 years from the mid-1300s to the mid-1000s, 1000 BC or so, that era ends with chapter 12. Now that Saul has been anointed and coronated... And the people have accepted Saul in light of this victory that God gave Saul for that purpose. It's time for Samuel to hand the reins of power over to Saul. But the power that he's going to hand over, the reins of power, is not all the power. He's going to hand over political power. The power to rule, which is what a judge did. But Samuel will continue as priest and prophet. We will see Samuel speak more Before his life is over, he's towards the end of his life. He's in the twilight. But before his life is over, he will speak a number of times more for God. In other words, as a prophet. What's happening in verse 12 is a big deal in terms of transition of power. One generation is handing the baton to the next generation. And so Samuel will give a poignant message to the people. It's a four-part message in chapter 12. Number one. He will remind Israel of his own authority, of Samuel's authority, and Samuel's credibility to speak about God, to speak on God's behalf, and to speak on God's ways. Number two, Samuel will remind the people of God's faithfulness to Israel. He's going to give them a history lesson. The reason people rewrite history, as they're doing today in our nation, is because they want to erase that which was in the past, they want to erase the facts, and the facts display God's mercy, display God's faithfulness. And the way you change the next generation, the generation that's coming up, is you don't tell them about the prior facts, facts that are noble, facts that are honorable. And instead, you educate the next generation with facts that are fictional, Because you're result-oriented. Samuel's result-oriented, no question. But the result that he is oriented in for the next generation, because he's gone almost, the result that he's focused on is for the next generation to know the facts, to know the history of God's faithfulness to Israel. So that's the second part of his message in chapter 12. The third part is that Samuel will admonish Israel For sinning against God and having asked for a king. In other words, having wanted a king that was like all the other nations. The fourth part of his message in chapter 12 is that in the tradition of all the prophets, Samuel will call the people back to covenant. He will call them back to the Mosaic covenant. You've heard it many times. The Mosaic covenant is very straightforward. It's where God says, if you obey me, I will bless you. And if you disobey me, I will curse you. And so Samuel makes a big point in chapter 12 in this farewell message to Israel. He makes a big point in calling the people back to covenant. He will mention God's name 36 times in these these verses of chapter 12, there are 25 verses of chapter 12, and Samuel will mention God's name 36 times. 32 times is the name Yahweh, four times is the name Elohim. There is no more important word in all the scripture. There is no more important doctrine, principle, precept, notion, idea, nothing. Nothing is more important in all the scripture than the name of God. That is why the name of God is taken so seriously. I realize the culture mocks the name of God. They won't forever. Nothing is more, per- more important in the revelation of God than his name, because his name reveals who he is, his essence, his attributes, his holiness, his righteousness, his love, his mercy, his grace. All of these characteristics, or his, in the Hebrew, it's chesed more than charis in, in, in the Greek, grace. His name reveals these things and Samuel knows it because Samuel has walked with the Lord for all these many decades and so his closing farewell message to the people circles around. It's centered around the name of God. Let's start with the message and we'll get just a little bit through it this evening. Verse 1 of chapter 12 reads like this, Then Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice in all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. I have appointed a king over you, Samuel says. That seems a little out of character, right? I mean, we talking about Samuel. Why doesn't Samuel say God appointed the king over you? Because Samuel's just repeating God's words, he's just parroting God's words. Because in chapter 8, verse 22, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. Same Hebrew word as we're seeing in verse 1 of chapter 12. It's the Hebrew word malak, which is the verb meaning to make someone king. Samuel's just repeating God's words. Samuel did appoint the king as God's agent. Ultimately, God appointed the king. He just used Samuel to do it. Remember, God groomed Samuel since he was a young boy working and serving in the tabernacle. He groomed him for this purpose. He groomed him to be a kingmaker. He gave him authority and gravitas to anoint the king so the people would say, I believe you, Samuel, that that is God's choice for the king. So there wouldn't be a civil war over. Is that really God's choice? So Samuel repeats the words of God and says, I appointed the king. Of course, he means he was God's agent in doing this appointment. Look at verse 2. Samuel continues, and he says, Now here is the king walking before you, but I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. Here, Samuel is talking about transition of power. He's talking about the plan of succession. Power will no longer rest in Samuel and his sons, he says, I'm old and gray. I'm on the way out. Right? I'm about to retire from the law firm. I'm leaving in a couple months. I'm about to retire from the medical practice, from the, from the governor's office. I'm about gone. And then he uses this phrase that's very politic, that's very delicate. He says, my sons are with you. That's a delicate way of saying, we all know my sons aren't going to be the successors. We all know my sons are not going to step into positions of power because the whole community knew from chapter 8, verse 3, that the sons of Samuel, sadly, were described as not walking in Samuel's ways. They were described as turning aside after dishonest gain. They were described as taking bribes and perverting justice. So everybody knows Samuel's saying, my sons are among you, which is a kind way of saying, it ain't me. And it ain't them who are going to be the successors. Samuel then focuses on the king and he says the king is walking before you, meaning there's your new ruler. You know he's the new ruler. You know he's been anointed. You know he's been coronated. You know that God gave him this great victory over the Yemenites. He's the king. He's the successor to me. Because I was the national ruler, I've now passed the political power to Kim. keep reading in verse 2 and I have walked before you from my youth even to this day here I am, bear witness against me before Yahweh and his anointed his anointed is the king bear witness against me before Yahweh and before Saul whose ox have I taken and whose donkey have I taken or whom have I defrauded whom have I oppressed or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. He said to them, Yahweh is witness against you and his anointed, against Saul, is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, he is witness. What does this mean? I mean, what is Samuel doing when he starts recounting his life? What he's doing is he's establishing his moral authority, his credibility. He's going to issue a solemn charge to the people of Israel. And before he does it, he lays out this description of his life, a life that was characterized by honor, by integrity, by cheating, for many decades by, by not cheating, I mean, for many decades, Samuel was the only ruler they ever knew. For decades. He had ruled the nation well. Since he was a child serving in the tabernacle, his public life matched his public ministry. His private life matched his public life. He lived the divine truths that he taught. Samuel didn't go around saying, Do what I say, but not what I do. See, that doesn't work. When the leader says... Do this and this and this. I do these things over here. Those are not good things. Don't do those. But instead do this and this and this. Don't do those things over there. When the leader, God's authority, comes in and says that, there's a problem. There's a credibility problem. That's not how Samuel lived. Samuel says, you know I didn't live like that. I didn't take a bribe from anybody. I didn't cheat. I have lived for decades. He's not saying he was sinless. No one's sinless but Christ. He's saying... He's lived a life of integrity, and his private ministry, private life, matched his public life. His private ministry matched his public ministry. And so he's recounting to them his credibility so that they recall to mind the authority that he has to give this great message that he's going to give in chapter 12, this message charging them with obedience to God. What we've seen so far is Samuel reminding the people, at least in chapter 12, of his credibility. And what he's doing is he's opening their minds to one final message before he exits the scene. And the next part of tra- chapter 12 is, is pretty in-depth, so I think we're going to stop there this evening and we'll, we'll open up the, the rest of chapter 12 Next time we're together, next Wednesday. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it. We ask that you challenge us by it, that we may be your servants, and that our private lives may match our public lives, recognizing that we will give an account before your son. We pray these things in his name.